0: This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast. Here I am with my fully implemented as code co-host, Jan. Hello Jan. Yeah, this is the buggy version, I'm afraid. Hey Dave. <laughs> In that case we'll have to roll you forward as we implement the fix. Sounds painful. Oh. <laughs> Yes, especially uh, especially at your age, rolling you forward oh, could, be, uh, could be dangerous to your health.
1: Come on, don't go there. <laughs> Just upgrade <laughs> me to a new version, problem solved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I should say at our age. But anyway, if you're wondering why on earth we're making all of these terrible puns, uh, it is because we are joined today by uh, an excellent topic yeah. expert here, Rosemary Wang who is author of Infrastructure is Code, Patterns and Practices uh, by Manning Publishing. And she's also a developer advocate at HashiCorp. So uh, unless there's anything else on your side, Jon.
1: No, we have a guest again. It's going to be a good episode, people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is. And uh, because we record these afterwards, I can, spoiler alert, say this is well worth the listen. So uh, with that, let's Let's get into it. Welcome, Rosemary.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me here today.
0: So we've got quite a, uh, a diverse and interesting set of topics to cover. But before we go into that, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Of course. So I am a developer advocate at HashiCorp, uh, as Dave mentioned, but. I'm also an author of Infrastructure's Code Patterns and Practices. Throughout my career, I've spent time in infrastructure, to software development, to networking, and now I work in open-source infrastructure tooling. So I've gotten a very large spectrum of experiences. <laughs> um, you know, I started out as, a, what they would say, a DevOps engineer. To this day, I still don't really know what that means. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as most folks may, not, may or may not know. Um, but I have this really strong appreciation for infrastructure automation in general, that has always been consistent. And since then, I've learned to write about it, educate others, um, and explore it more myself. If you have any questions after this, you're welcome to reach out to me at j-o-a-t-m-o-n-0-8.github.io. Uh, that is my home page. It has a bunch of resources as well as how to get connected to me.
0: Fantastic. I mean, the the obvious uh, the obvious thing is uh, to take a look at the the media page, uh, and uh, you've done a lot of of kind of speaking on these kinds of topics, um, and and sort of I, we certainly looked through that some of the the uh, sessions that you'd given before coming up with the, the, the content ideas here, because it seems quite quite a varied area that you've uh, been spending some of your time on.
2: Yes. I think that it has been a symptom of the number of open source tools that I happen to be interested in. <laughs> and a symptom of just how much uh, I suppose my career has been defined. I've had to wear, as, as many people have in this industry, have had to wear a lot of hats, right? Whether it be from a development standpoint or an operations standpoint. And just by the nature of needing to wear so many different roles and different hats in in, organiza- in various organizations, as a result, I end up talking about a lot of things, um, and the the joke is that I'm not a specialist in any of them. I just have a lot of breadth across uh, many different fields, whether it become it comes from um, you know delivery to security to you know, application development, etc. And I'm proud to say that now I'm i I've come to terms that I'm a better software developer than I thought I was. So that's progress there. <laughs> in um, but I can't say I'm the most incredible software developer that you've ever ever met. So I I always uh, looking to improve that space. Uh,
0: excellent. Well, in that case, uh, we we have a, a a very much improving software developer in in, in the, the side of you, and we have an absolutely terrible software developer in in the, the way of me. Yeah. So uh, and I'll I'll, I'll let Yon set his own level. <laughs>
1: I have my own illusions, and I'll keep, I'm keeping them. <laughs>
0: Uh, so out of out of curiosity and just for fun, what's the, what's the sort of open source project that's the latest open source project that's caught your eye that you're kind of interested to dig into a little bit more right now?
2: So uh, it's going to be HashiCorp boundary just because in the security space in particular, it was always a problem that I ran into. And I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to test or work on production systems. For example, as an operations person, it didn't really feel comfortable to give me uh, admin credentials to production mm-hmm. I was always a little wary of that and um, has boundary is a secure access management uh, to, uh, open source tool um, and what's really neat about it is that you can issue temporary access to production right so you can revoke and terminate the session uh, as required and it integrates with secrets management it's a you know it's pretty neat I've been having a lot mm. of fun exploring it. And um, you know, in my day to day, I'm always exploring the Kubernetes space, especially with yeah. Vault and Console, other HashiCorp tools too. So um, overall, those are the bit, that's kind of the most fascinating one right now. Um, but nice. there are many more that I keep exploring.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's let's kind of launch into the into the the core of the topic here. I think uh, you sort of you sort of touched on uh, part of the problem right during your your intro around uh, well you know what actually is a devops engineer who knows uh, everyone has their own kind of different definition but um, you know if if you were if you were forced to come up with a definition of you know what's a, what's a devops engineer what's an sre what are the differences between the two you know what would what would your best guess at that be
2: yeah so devops engineering i think is a job description
0: Mm-hmm. I think it
2: came out of the philosoph- like at least the philosophical basis of DevOps, right, as a set of practices um, and a way of working across your organization. So we always think about DevOps and the CAMS model, culture, automation, um, you know, et cetera. So a lot of the philosophy is put toward this job description of a DevOps engineer, and I think the result is that we end up having this catch-all term for someone who is responsible for automating systems but ultimately, taking a software development approach to certain parts of it, right? Um, and that software development approach improves the maintainability as well as the overall resiliency and hopefully availability of the system. However, we I think in part of this journey as we scale um, our engineering skill sets, uh, that quite frankly, not everybody knows everything about um, that they need to know about DevOps, right? That's why we have all these terms now called DevSecOps, you know, all of these or uh, Dev. Data ops, at some point I heard that. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of these terms now because we realize that not every DevOps engineer or that job description can encompass the specializations or the understanding of certain systems and certain use cases and domains. And I think SRE is part of that experience, and that not every, as much as we want everybody to understand resiliency and assess how to build a system. Um, in a more resilient way, it's a very difficult thing to do. And sometimes we need someone whose focus, whose domain focus is understanding how a system is built as a whole, and then diving in and implementing new ways to make it more reliable. And so I think that SRE is a subset of DevOps, I suppose, DevOps mm-hmm. engineering, if we want to talk, call it DevOps engineering. Uh, it's an unfortunate term, but I think it's a little bit like saying there's a broad bucket of sandwiches, that's DevOps, um, and then there's, you know, SRE, which is a certain type of sandwich, and then you can debate all you <laughs> want whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> nope. like, you know, and people will continue to make that debate, but I think in, yeah. in my mind, it is very much a subset because we can't, as much as we want to be generalists in a DevOps philo- in, in the DevOps philosophy, we can't necessarily do that.
1: Are there particular things that you would say are definitely not part of an SRE's job?
2: I think part of this includes somewhat, you know, you have to understand some of the business domain, some of the problems, but you don't have to be the expert at uh, developing the business logic for that domain, if that makes sense. So, for example, you might not need to know everything that has to do with payments um, or PCI compliance, for example. Mm-hmm. But you, knew, you do need to understand what are the ramifications or consequences if a payment, a real-time payment, does not go through that system. Um, and so there's, a, there's an understanding that you do have to work, you have to at least have a working, some working knowledge of what domain you are designing for from a system's perspective. Um, you know, security is a big part of designing a system very well especially these days but you may not be the biggest expert in security and compliance and all mm-hmm. of the regulations that are required out of that system and in which case as an SRE that might not be something that you are diving into in depth.
0: Yeah. I mean, what one of the one of the topics we we're going to touch on a bit later is is kind of bringing that SRE model to to networking as a whole. Now, does that mean you know, if you talk to the network vendors, they talk about NREs, network reliability engineers, and the, is, is the distinction here that the majority of the network vendors are still thinking hardware, whereas a lot of other organizations uh, are already thinking about networking as just another branch of code. It's just software-defined networking everywhere.
2: It's a good question. A lot of vendors are now thinking about software-defined networking, or at least they're putting more focus on uh, the ability to do network automation, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, now speaking of more specializations in DevOps, we have Net NetDevOps. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that if you're running your own network, right, in that case, you have maybe your own hardware, um, you are going to have a dedicated platform team, so to speak. That is going to focus on networking because there is some specialization, right? It's really difficult, for example, to teach uh, something like BGP. Uh, I had to learn some of it, and I'm still confused. And so <laughs> I think that the yeah, it's it's very much. Um, I think there is some merit to making a specialization about network reliability engineering, but if you are doing something um, in the public cloud, the network, you know, an, an NRE may not be as require. It may not be as necessary mostly because how much are you responsible for that networking now there's some things that you might find important to do for example peering right peering with various you know across multiple clouds for example um you might have network policy that you have to consider but is that network reliability engineering or can that be part of general uh, you know automation and the workflow that you might implement from your uh, some of some of your operations perspective and so I think that there's a merit to calling network reliability engineering something specific if you have your own network and you're running it. There is some yeah. complexity that you would have to manage.
0: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. All right. So if we were to start maybe at some of the like the fundamental sort of pieces of this puzzle, I'm guessing that one of the the foundational building blocks is is essentially infrastructure as code. That's where a lot of a lot of this starts from, um, you know, how would you how would you define that to someone who's unfamiliar with the the term?
2: So it's using software development practices uh, and DevOps practices to automating infrastructure, and you're doing this in order to optimize for resiliency, availability, and maintainability of that infrastructure over time. I think that. Uh, a lot of the folks can debate whether or not software, de- what we what do we mean by software development practices? Is it really as code? <laughs> um, and we can debate about whether or not it's truly a programming language or not a programming language or it's software or not software, but it doesn't uh, diminish the merit of applying certain development practices that we've learned in the software space to managing infrastructure.
0: Okay. And is is this where the differentiation between, is it, code or is it just configuration kind of comes in is it sort of and if it is you know a mixture of the two then it's sort of code or configuration plus the code to automate the configuration is that the sort of sort of cycle that you often get to talking about
2: for me yes i think it's a combination of both um, mm. And, you know, most folks who who brand something like an infrastructure as code tool tend to actually, um, actually relate to provisioning tools, which are tools that are used to provision and configure specific resources, right?
0: Mm. But there's
2: also configuration management in which you may need to manage something like a server. And that still has some, that is still infrastructure and you're trying to automate it uh, and you're trying to do it sustainably um, and maintainably. So I think that. For me, a lot of infrastructure as code encompasses both the immutable practices uh, of creating new infrastructure, recreating it, and reconfiguring it, but also the configuration management aspect, which is, for the most part, mutable. And I think that's where there's some debate, too, in which some folks say you should always be replacing new infrastructure, uh, changes with new infrastructure, you should do it immutably, and that's the Mm. principle of it. But on the other hand, from a practical standpoint, at least in the practice that I've had um, scaling systems, you're going to do both. You're going to treat infrastructure both mutably and immutably.
1: Yeah. For me, kind of the difference is that if you're doing interest code, you're going to be talking to APIs, to REST APIs, to do things while configuration management tools, well, you're just moving files around, not actually interacting with other intelligent systems. Intelligent.
2: Yeah. I think that it is. I think configuration management has changed over time too, mm-hmm. and that's where the line is slowly becoming a little bit more difficult to understand for many for many people. Um, you know, if you're doing something, and we're going, we'll go back to the networking space just because yep. you know it's this is a really interesting example of this. But you know, when you're working on a network switch, you would you know program commands on a serial port, um, and now you can program and issue those same commands, which would effectively be configuration management. Through you know an API, REST API now, um, and so the lines are kind of growing a little more confusing, um, and that's where I wanted you know in terms of thinking about these practices and putting them on paper and writing them, I realized that there was quite a bit of confusion. Mm-hmm. The practices overlap quite a bit, yeah. um, hmm. but you know it's just a different use
0: case. I mean, what what do you think are some of the guidelines that people should think about in terms of you know uh, you referred to sort of talking about systems immutably or mutably like what are some of the the ways that people should be thinking about sort of op- optimizing how they think about interacting with these with systems
2: so i tend to say prioritize immutability right if you can create a resource a new resource with the changes um, and use that new resource Without necessarily updating in place the old one, you mitigate a lot of risk to your system, mm. to, at least the risk of failure to your system. Um, it's reducing what I say the blast radius, right? So if you're creating a new resource, your blast radius of something going wrong is localized to those new resources that you're creating. But, you know, on the other hand, immutability is costly. It costs money. Um, if you're in inf- your' like public inf- public cloud infrastructure, mm-hmm. you're going to create duplicate resources, and that does cost money. Uh, you know, if you're doing something even on you know on-prem in your own data center, that also has a procurement cost as well. Um, you have to have the double you know double the set of resources effectively, or you have to figure out some kind of virt- set of virtualization resources that you have to have. So. When immutability is not possible, if you cannot prioritize it due to cost reasons or resource constraints, then consider doing something mutably, if, and that means updating something you know, in place. If it means that you can do it with generally very low risk and you can do it fairly quickly, then you might as well just you know, update something in place rather than mm-hmm. create a new resource for it. Um, now, there's a margin for error in which you don't know if something is going to go wrong if you <laughs> update it in place. In which case, yeah. you have to—you just have to take that into account. You just hope that you have a reproducible infrastructure's code, so that if something does go wrong, you can create a new set of resources, cut over to that new set of resources, um, and you maintain—you know—your overall system. You know, you're not affecting anything functionally. But you know, that's very—at least—that's my very practical approach. Uh, To understanding how to manage infrastructure as a
1: whole
0: yeah yeah okay so you know let's say someone's got a relatively small deployment that they they take care of in a a a legacy sort of way right now and they're looking to kind of bring it into the sort of infrastructure as code um, type method how should they start? what What are the sort of first things that they should look at in terms of how they should start to to change or modify the way they approach uh, what they're doing on a daily basis?
2: That's a good question. With legacy systems, it's really difficult to understand if you'll even get a benefit out of it, right? so some mm. some systems, no matter how much you try to automate or no matter how much you're going to try to move it to infrastructure's code, it's just to a point where it's not necessarily worth it, uh, and you know I know everybody's like you must move everything to infrastructure as code. Um, if you're only making a change to that legacy system once a year, uh, you should mm. document it really well and maybe consider automating a portion, a small portion of it. But maybe you, you know, you you might not want to have to move the whole resource to infrastructure as code. Now, if we're talking like legacy, meaning we've had something on cloud for you know, five years or something and we originally manually sort of organized around it. We built some really piecemeal automation over time Mm -hmm. and we're now thinking that we have to make changes to it, you know, more than once a year and that situation, you know, you may have to think about migrating the infrastructure as code and from a technical Mm -hmm. perspective, um, that means identifying a tool because a tool will help you a lot. Um, you can write your own automation, but a tool will provide a, an opinionated way for you to manage that infrastructure resource going forward. So, identify a tool of your choice, understand how you can import an existing resource into that tool, and reconcile the drift between what you express as a configuration for that legacy resource, as well as the current state. So, drift is the idea that there is a difference between the actual state as well as what you express. Mm-hmm. Infrastructure as code, and if there's a difference, you have to reconcile it because the entire premise of infrastructure as code is to constantly be remediating drift. You want to avoid drift because drift will introduce possible failures into your system and, yeah. because you don't know that these things exist. So, um, when you do a legacy when you do a legacy migration from Non-infrastructure code to infrastructure code, and um, that's from first from a technical view. But then from a second part of that, it's how do you manage it going forward? And there's a whole set of practices around managing it going
1: forward. And I can imagine so, in a cloud world, drift is also being introduced by the cloud hyperscalers themselves, and not just by your own environment.
2: Exactly. If you have something, and we'll take something like a managed service. Even mm-hmm. if you're doing like a managed database, you're doing a managed data resource of some kind. Most of the time the you know a, a cloud provider will patch for you or you can give them the option to update these resources for you, and that introduces drift because now your expectation yeah. of what version or what configuration it might have has now been patched by your provider.
0: I mean when when we're talking about drift um, is is generally the expectation that the the tooling that you use. Will be will be the thing that that is the the primary way of detecting when when drift has occurred, or w- you're expecting sort of that to be uh, in the more in the software development lifecycle side of things, or where does that mostly happen?
2: I think it's a combination of both. You want to in I think the trick with infrastructure as code is to instill a set of practices from a development perspective that you're reducing drift, right? So avoid making manual changes to your infrastructure in the console. Like, you know, one way that folks try to do this um, from a development standpoint is that they do not allow engineering teams access to the cloud console. Everything, any change that they push to infrastructure must be done through version control. Um, And it is put through, uh, you know, a CI/CD, a continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline. It has tests, it is structured its delivery to production is in a very well-staged, well-oriented workflow. There's the other part of this where there is a tool or there's a necessity for a second type, type of runtime detection, right? where if there's some other drift that's happening, whether you you have gone in for an emergency change and you've made some update to an infrastructure resource, or your Cloud provider has made the update for you, there is a you know an expectation that you have a secondary tool to check for any regression right or check for any drift in that. Um, so if you're using an infrastructure code as code tool, a number of them will offer some kind of drift detection, uh, whether it be within the tool itself or as an external part of the tool. Um, mm-hmm. And there are also a number of tools that you can have uh, running that are separate from even the tools themselves that are looking just (laughs) at the infrastructure and assessing the runtime, expected runtime
0: configuration. Got it, okay. Mm -hmm. And
1: we're gonna have to say goodbye to Rosemary for a little while now because we talked for a long time with Rosemary. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, But it's just too much for a single episode. So We're gonna split this one in a couple. And uh, this is uh, the first installment, let's say. So um, next week we'll continue the story with Rosemary. Unless there's anything else from you. Dave. Nope, Nope, nothing else for me. Then that is all the time you have for today. You can support this podcast. Please become a patron. Contributions do help us a lot to keep this little podcast afloat. We are on YouTube. You can hit the like buttons. You can subscribe, notification bells, make Dave happy. He he, he needs it. You can also go to www.roaringelephant.org. There's links at there the patron page, page, the YouTube page and all the rest we do on the podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag feedback. If you have any, please send that to podcast at RoaringElephant.org. With that, until next time, my name is apparently outdated John,
0: <laughs> And my name is Zero Drift Dave.
1: Oh, we look forward to talking to you again next week and calculate that drift of Dave, because <laughs> no way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See you then.